0: This This is the Buck Buck Sexton Sexton Show, Show.
1: where the mission mission is to
2: decode what really matters
1: with actionable intelligence. One
2: small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again.
1: The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton.
3: It is Buck Sexton. Now.
2: Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton here on New Year's Eve live. In Midtown Manhattan, I don't know if this is this qualifies as the Freedom Hut, given that we are in De Blasio's New York, and it's also just madness outside these studios right now. Maybe it's a safe space for liberty lovers, conservatives, and the like. Thank you so much for spending your holiday season with me here on New Year's Eve. This is a time to be thankful and appreciative, and I want to start first by sending out my condolences to the family of one of my colleagues at The Federalist, the late Bree Payton, who was taken from us way too young. It's a tragic loss for our company, for family, for freedom itself, and her life should serve as an example for what people in the media should strive for. As I mentioned, Ben Weingarten filling in for Buck Sexton today, senior contributor at The Federalist, senior fellow at the London Center for Policy Research. I'm also the proprietor of the Big Ideas with Ben Weingarten podcast, where we focus on long-form conversations with deep thinkers and expert doers. You can subscribe everywhere podcasts are found, and you can follow me on Twitter at bhwinegarden. I also want to start. We should appreciate what we have, the freedoms that we have, that we live in this amazing nation. I want to also thank right up at the top, Buck Sexton, for giving me this opportunity to spend this time with you and fill his large shoes. Today, given that we are at the start of a new year and in the holiday season, we should talk about how lucky we are to be in this nation and how great we have it. And it's not just the material bounty that we have. It's about the freedom that provides us the opportunity to pursue our happiness, however we define it. This is the exception in the history of mankind. The standard in world history, and this isn't just historically, look at a map today. Look at the governments and where the largest population centers in this world exist. Freedom is the exception. It is darkness almost over the entire globe. And that actually is what is normal in the history of mankind. The standard is that you live as a serf under a lord or as a slave under a slave master, or in a gulag nation like what North Korea is today. Look at a world map, study world history. The reason history is so important in part is so that we appreciate the fruits of what we have in this nation. Billions of people throughout human history, and including today, have only known totalitarianism and an oppressive state, where if you have any rights, you really do have crumbs, like Nancy Pelosi likes to say, and they can be snatched from you at any time. Rule of law? Non-existent. Could be gone tomorrow. Property rights? What are property rights in many nations? Take the case of Venezuela, for example. In 2001, Venezuela was South America's richest country. Now it's a failed state. It is literally like Iraq when you look at what the metrics are in terms of economics and crime, the collapse. All due to bad ideas. Bad ideas can take everything that you've built up over centuries and destroy them. Amazingly, one of the benefits that we've had in America from our success, much of which we've taken for granted, and few people even think about all the necessary steps that it took to get to this place today, one of the benefits is that we have it so good that we can take time to explore all the flaws within our nation. We can focus on those flaws to such a degree that we end up tearing at the very fabric that made us into what we are. It's an amazing thing. People have never had things so good, and they want to throw this experiment into the trash bin of history. I should tell you, I have a child on the way right now. That'll be one of the New Year's gifts. I could be called out of this show at any minute, potentially, as a result of where we are right now. And as a future first-time parent, one of the things that you think about is, what kind of world are you going to bring your child into, How do you inculcate them with the beliefs, the values, and principles that you want to dominate in this world? You know, part of it is protecting them, but they also have to live in a reality. And what is the reality today? Well, the reality today is that among our elite, the ideas that trickle down and percolate into society are completely antithetical to the ones on which this nation was based. And in a sense, what you have is progressive agitprop, progressive propaganda. It's in government and in the bureaucracy, which is its own branch of government even though it's not treated as such. It's in the media and it's in our education system. You have highly credentialed people but not necessarily wise people. They're intelligent, but they're, intel- they're intelligent people, but their intelligence leads them to believe they can perfect society, that they have a moral duty to try to perfect society through wielding the power of the state, to nudge us deplorables, as Cass Sunstein, Obama regulatory czar, once put it, to nudge us deplorables towards the right answer. But who were they to make that decision over us? Why is that the morally right thing to do? They would argue, essentially, they're morally superior. As virtue signers and as holders of these values and principles, they should be the ones to point us in the right direction. And what is the impact of these bad ideas? Well, I mentioned they destroyed Venezuela in a very short period of time, in under two decades. Bad ideas took the richest nation in South America and destroyed it. But those ideas have seeped in here as well. And people look at campus craziness and they kind of shrug it off as well. This is just young people, immature it's crazy ivory tower sort of stuff and when they get onto the real world and see the percentage of tax dollars taken out of their smaller paychecks then they start to see oh my gosh there actually are some pretty negative consequences for me and my family and my future but it's about much more than just economics because economics are an outgrowth of our belief system free market economics are an outgrowth of a system of values and principles judeo-christian western values and principles and that free market capitalist system springs from them. It's the result of them. But that's not the end. That's just one of the benefits. There was a recent poll put out by the Foundation for Liberty and American Greatness slash YouGov, and it was called the State of American Patriotism Report. They polled 1,100 people, a bit under 50% of them between 14 and 37 years old folks. So we're talking millennials and pre-millennials and maybe a little bit of Gen Xers as well. Here were some of the findings from that survey. Half of those surveyed believe the United States is sexist and racist. American exceptionalism is on the decline, according to the report. 46% of younger Americans do not agree that, quote unquote, America is the greatest country in the world. 38% of younger Americans do not agree that, quote, America has a history that we should be proud of. One in eight, 14% of millennials agree. America was never a great country and it never will be. So that is the future Andrew Cuomo constituency. Forty six percent of younger Americans agree that America is more racist than other countries. I got to tell you, these people have never been to any other country. Probably it's absolutely mind numbing. Both the ignorance and the arrogance, the ignorance to not know and the arrogance to put forth these sorts of views, not knowing anything about them. 84% of Americans do not know the specific rights enumerated in the First Amendment. So how can they be counted on to defend that First Amendment when they don't even know what it is or why it existed in the first place? 19% of millennials believe that the American flag is a quote-unquote sign of intolerance and hatred. My God. 44% of younger Americans believe Barack Obama had a quote-unquote bigger impact on America than George Washington. So that is what young Americans get out of our education system, out of our media. I mean, you got to give the left credit, at least with Alexander Hamilton, people know a little bit about him. So you have this ignorant, arrogant, young population in America, and that is our future. The bad ideas have consequences. If people hate the very values and principles on which a country is based, How can they be counted on to defend them, to promulgate them to their kids? And we're talking multiple generations of this kind of propaganda. So naturally, in Axios last night, there was an article titled The Coming Reckoning for Capitalism. A quote from that article. One of the most important trends likely to drive the 2020 presidential race, a growing dissolution with capitalism as practice and a coming struggle over how to recast this pillar of the Western order. And, you know, it's funny. These people like to talk about how Trump is a threat to Western civilization, yet they're the ones that want to throw out the very principles on which Western civilization derives. The article goes on. The bottom line, you could hardly challenge a more basic part of who we are as Americans and Westerners. Polling shows a rising number of young Americans prefer socialism to capitalism. Now, I would question whether or not they can define what socialism is and what capitalism is. So the fact that they have an opinion on it is, I would say, questionable to begin with. But that's staggering, because if we won the Cold War, how can it be that half the country believes in socialism over capitalism among the youth? That is a direct failure on the part of of those who run our institutions, who are supposed to be the ones safeguarding what this country is based on. And the article continues, that's a 12 point decline in young adults as positive views of capitalism in just the past two years and a market shift since 2010 when 68% viewed it positively. We're talking about 14 to 37 year old folks, millennials, 18 to 29 year olds, but it starts way before they're even in college, this sort of propagandizing and effectively brainwashing people. And there's something very sick about that. So there was a Wall Street Journal editorial that caught my eye recently. It's titled Reading from Left to Left at Barnes & Noble. And it goes on to talk about a display at Barnes & Noble that this journalist saw called, quote-unquote, inspiring books to empower young readers. What inspires and empowers young readers? Well, the collection included... First Generation, 36 Trailblazing Immigrants and Refugees Who Make America Great, which lionizes, among others, Univision anchorman Jorge Ramos and the first fashion model to wear a hijab. The article goes on. There were three memoirs by illegal aliens, two novels whose protagonists were refugees, Sonia Sotomayor's Supreme Court Justice, Turning Pages, My Life Story, and We Rise, We Resist, We Raise Our Voices, an anthology that includes a fictional story of a child who is arrested by immigrations and custom enforcement agents at school as he endures taunts from white classmates wearing Make America Great Again hats. Who writes this stuff up? I mean, this is not The Onion. This is a Barnes and Noble display. This is what these are the books that are pushed on our kids. The article goes on. One Portlandia-esque title. You Are Mighty, A Guide to Changing the World, is billed as a how-to manual on build up being an activist. It features Genesis Palacio, a preteen girl wearing a vegan power t-shirt, who became a vegetarian when she was three after learning that quote-unquote animals were killed for her food. Apparently, according to the article, Barnes & Noble stores in other cities have similar displays. The chain's corporate office didn't answer the emails of the author. And the article concludes, conservative-themed children's books are out there, but you have to seek out these subversive titles like pornography before the internet. Liberals are devoted to diversity, but they define it in a particular way, obsessing over race, sex, and sexual orientation while demanding conformity of thought, unquote. Let me tell you, as a future father, I recently received a book. My family received a book by someone who did not know where I stood on the ideological spectrum. I kid you not, it's called A is for Activist. This is a picture book. I'll quote a bit from it, and then we'll go to a quick break. Letter E, equal rights, black, brown, or white. Clean and healthy is a right. Every place we live and play, environmental justice is the way. Letter J, J is for justice. Yay for justice. Juanita, Jamal, justice for the janitors. Justicia for all. Letter O. This is a great one. Open minds operate best. Critical thinking over tests. Wisdom can't be memorized. Educate, agitate, organize. Now, tell me where our response to a book like that is, because I don't think there's A is for America is exceptional. B is for borders and national sovereignty. C is for capitalism and creative destruction. That would be laughed out of the bookstore. But the other side is propagandizing with picture books for young, impressionable children who cannot... I cannot conceivably grapple with any of these sorts of ideas. It's unimaginable that there's anything like this on our side. And frankly, I don't begrudge us because it's sick to try to propagandize among young people with this stuff. So what do you do when you're dropping your kid in the middle of a world where everything is insane and where everything is about breeding left wing activism and ignorance? We're creating activists and idiots, useful idiots idiots. For an agenda. And we'll talk a little bit about that agenda right after this quick break. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. More next. This is The Buck Sexton Show, and this is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Happy New Year's Eve to you all, and thank you for joining me today. Follow me on Twitter at BH All right, before the break, we were talking a bit about poisonous ideas and the poisonous consequences they have for society. And it's very hard to kind of quantify or sum up what the impact of multiple generations of this sort of progressive thought policing has been. But I think there was a fine example of it this weekend on Meet the Press, where Chuck Ta did a full episode on environmentalism. And he stated near the start of the show, and I'll quote here, we're not going to debate climate change, the existence of it, the earth is getting hotter and human activity is a major cause, period. We're not going to give time to climate deniers. The science is settled, even if political opinion is not, unquote. That's a very scientific attitude there by Chuck Todd, because after all, we know exactly how much human beings have contributed to warming. We know for a fact that this isn't just one of another million historical cycles that there have been in terms of temperature. We know that temperature is climate. They're exactly the same thing. He's so confident in his position that anyone who would who would deign to present some countervailing evidence. Shut up. And by the way, we're going to call you climate deniers, which is a pretty offensive kind of term, because what they're when when you hear deniers use, what does that usually bring up? Well, it's Holocaust deniers. Chuck Todd is smart enough to know that he probably shouldn't be using that phrase to describe anyone who would challenge a view that is not unanimously held. Look up the 97% of climate scientists all agree statistic, and it's a bogus statistic. So then he had Jerry Brown on, the California governor, and Jerry Brown said this about climate change. At first, he was talking about the challenge from China and then climate change. So I want to put this in context here. He said, and I quote, instead of worrying about tariffs, I'd like to see the president and the Congress invest tens of billions in renewable energy, in more efficient batteries to get us off fossil fuel as quickly as we can. Well, they really love this. In France, the green vest, he he goes on, I would point to the fact that it took late president FDR many, many years to get America willing to go into World War II and fight the Nazis. And he continues here. Well, we have an enemy, though different, but perhaps very much devastating in a similar way. And we've got to fight climate change. And the president's got to lead on that. So uh, what I want to understand is, is he saying that fighting something that may or may not be transpiring in the environment that human beings may or may not have a disproportionate impact on, is the equivalent of fighting the Nazis? Or is he comparing the Chinese to the Nazis? I'm I'm not quite sure where he's going with that analogy. But let's sum up what this really is. Climatism is a secular religion, or at least it is a sect in the progressive secular religion, and the state is their church. What is climate change really about for them? It's about sort of, in some sense, justifying mass redistribution of wealth. It's about apologizing for our Western sins of being industrialized and therefore redistributing the fruits of it to the first and third world nations. It's a form of elite virtue signaling. It's very easy to say, I care about the environment and then go trotting around on a jet. You don't really have to deal with the consequences or take responsibility. And oh, by the way, there's also the self-interested aspect of this, which is that those who promote this vision oftentimes are the very people who end up personally benefiting from government investments, the Greens, more Solyndras. Well, Solyndras all over the country, if these people are the ones who are allowed to dominate. Ultimately, though, what progressivism is about, as I mentioned, is a secular religion. It is about dominance. And the way that you instill that dominance is to propagate these messages starting with little children, starting with toddlers, and working all the way up through college. And how are you going to be able to compete against that when all you have is the real world? This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. Follow me on Twitter at bhwinegarden, And thank you so much for spending your New Year's Eve evening with me. We've been speaking about the dominance of progressivism in media and academia. We've all follow that sort of running theme. It's a huge challenge, and frankly, conservatives haven't even begun to grapple with just how devastating it's been, the progressive march through the institutions, as Gramsci called it, over a 100-year period. We We haven't even begun to recognize the extent, the nature of the problem, which is imperative to actually then starting to figure out a way to counter it. Maybe something that can help us to remember what our principles are, is to look at an adversary who threatens them. It's sad, but it could be that perhaps it'll be an external threat to the US's dominant position in the world that allows us in part to enjoy the freedom that we have. Maybe it's an external threat that we have to look to, to summon within the American people who we are and what we really believe in. We're gonna do a deep dive now on China. Most people, when they think about China today, they think trade war, tariffs, President Trump, mano y mano with Xi Jinping. I believe that drastically minimizes what is actually going on in the world. Maybe the most monumental revolutionary shift that has happened in Washington, D.C. under President Trump, certainly on the national security and foreign policy side. Since the opening of the relationship with China under Richard Nixon, we're talking in the 70s here, the narrative has always been that China would peacefully rise, that we would open up trade with China, China would be rich, rich countries ultimately want to be free countries rather than the other way around, that free countries end up rich, and that any bellicosity, any adversarial nature, any aggression from China would be checked by the fact That, look, they're entering this world trading architecture that the West built, and they are going to be good partners, and we'll all get rich together. So they got access to the world financial architecture that we built, and it's helped enable them to become the major producer of goods consumed in America and the second largest country economy in the world. It's also funded the world's largest intelligence dictatorship, something to keep an eye on. They actually have scores where they grade citizens on their patriotism and a massive surveillance system around them. So you could be a bad citizen if they don't like your spending habits or maybe where you travel or what you say on social media checked as it already is. What we did was we capitalized what was a communist regime and turned it from a third world country into from a wealth perspective, a competitive country in economics. And we allowed it to expand its sphere of influence worldwide. Now, how has China paid us for the privilege of becoming a leading world power? Well, they steal hundreds of billions of dollars worth of intellectual property in particular from strategically significant sectors. That's real value taken from the West and, of course, from America because we're a dominant technological power. So they steal our blueprints. They don't create them themselves. They're not a fair competitor. When the president talks about free, fair, and reciprocal trade, part of that is they need to deal on an even playing field, and they don't. This is part of a comprehensive plan of economic aggression, which the White House documented in a June 2018 report from its Office of Trade and Manufacturing Policy, which is run by Peter Navarro, who's cast as a China hawk. It laid out in that strategy that China's goals are to protect its home market from imports and competition, expand its share of global markets, secure and control core natural resources, globally dominate traditional manufacturing industries, acquire key technologies and intellectual property from other countries, including the United States, and capture the emerging high tech industries that will drive future economic growth and many advancements in the defense industry. One of those primary technologies being 5G control over all global communications. China is a huge competitor in this space, and there's been an increasing effort among some countries to wean themselves off of potentially Chinese technology when it comes to global telecommunications. China's also engaged in a massive loan-to-own strategy where they provide financing to countries to build things like ports, strategically significant things. And then when the countries default on them because they can't afford the terms, China comes in and gobbles them up. So they expand their influence through loaning and then owning you. They've opened up their first overseas military base last year in Djibouti, a strategically significant nation at the entrance to the Red Sea en route to the Suez Canal. A U.S. base is located just miles away. It repeatedly is a base for staging operations against jihadist groups. And of course, China's allegedly directed high-grade lasers at American aircraft in Djibouti, supposedly injuring two U.S. airmen. Now China is seeking to have a state-owned company manage the port of Djibouti. They threaten access to the freedom of seas by buzzing our ships and the ships of our allies. They militarize man-made islands in the South China Sea, even though they promised President Obama they wouldn't. Big surprise. They threaten companies in the West who list Taiwan and Tibet, other territories, as separate territories on their websites because China considers it all China. So if you have a drop-down menu on your website and you are a global, let's say, hotel chain, China will attack you. You can't list Taiwan, Tibet as separate entities. That's all there, that's all China. That's soft power by the way. They will threaten companies abroad for merely what's listed in a drop-down menu. And by the way, companies have cowed to this. And why? In part because they're afraid of losing that business in the world's second biggest market. In part because they're probably afraid of other potential ramifications that could threaten the life and limb of their employees literally. They also propagandize. They have publications around the world, propagate their own media. They infiltrate our education system and other education systems through the use of Confucius Institutes. I did a podcast on Confucius Institutes, by the way. I urge you to check it out. They use these so-called cultural exchange institutes within our schools. And what they actually do is they propagandize with the Chinese Communist Party line. And they also spy on Chinese citizens or ex-Chinese citizens who are abroad and potentially even engage in espionage beyond just trying to push former Chinese citizens in line and potentially threaten them. So beyond the propaganda, and this isn't just a foreign policy issue, they also, the Communist Party in China, and this is according to Vice President Pence, who gave a major speech on this, are rewarding or coercing American businesses, movie studios, universities, think tank scholars, journalists, and local and state federal officials. They have to tow the party line. According to Vice President Pence, our intelligence community says China is targeting U.S. state and local governments and officials to exploit any divisions between federal and local levels on policy. It's using wedge issues like trade tariffs to advance Beijing's political influence. We hear a lot about Russian influence in elections. Well, according to Vice President Pence, and this is a landmark speech that I urge everyone to read, overlooked by the media, one of the most important foreign affairs addresses, really one of the most important addresses period during the Donald Trump presidency, Vice President Pence at the Hudson Institute in the fall. Vice President Pence said, China is also directly appealing to the American voters. Last week, and again, this was during the election season, the midterm elections, the Chinese government paid to have a multi-page supplement inserted into the Des Moines Register, the paper of record in the home state of our ambassador to China, Ambassador Branstad, and a pivotal state in 2018 and 2020. The supplement, designed to look like the news articles, cast our trade policies as reckless and harmful to Iowans. Foreign influence in our elections, folks. Right there in the newspapers. As Vice President Pence goes on to say, Beijing now requires American joint ventures that operate in China to establish what they call party organizations within their company, giving the Communist Party a voice and perhaps a veto in hiring and investment decisions. They also provide funding, of course, to think tanks and schools, and with that funding does come strings attached, of course. So China's engaged in a comprehensive whole of government effort to become the world's hegemon, and it has a direct impact on America, not only as an, as an economic competitor, but as a national security threat. And I want to read just a couple quick excerpts, and then we'll talk about what the response has been on the nature of what China is doing in the world. New York Times, to their credit, ran an article in June, how China got Sri Lanka to cough up a port. Article starts, every time Sri Lanka's president, Mahinda Rajapaksa, turned to his Chinese allies for loans and assistance with an ambitious port project, the answer was yes. Yes, though feasibility studies said the port wouldn't work. Yes, though other frequent lenders like India had refused. Yes, though Sri Lanka's debt was ballooning rapidly under Mr. Rajapaksa. Over years of construction and renegotiation with China Harbor Engineering Company, one of Beijing's largest state-owned enterprises, the Hambantota port development project distinguished itself mostly by failing as predicted with tens of thousands of ships passing by along one of the world's busiest shipping lanes the port drew only 34 ships in 2012 and then the port became china's mr rajapaksa was voted out of office in 2015 but sri lanka's new government struggled to make payments on the debt he had taken on under heavy pressure and after months of negotiations with the chinese the government handed over the port and 15,000 acres of land around it for 99 years In December, the transfer gave China China control of territory just a few hundred miles off the shores of a rival, India, and a strategic foothold along a critical commercial and military waterway. Okay, but it's not just in Sri Lanka. So another article, Wall Street Journal. Later in the year, trophy infrastructure, troublesome debt. China makes inroads in Europe. The article begins, Europe is distracted by internal discord over immigration and its tense relationship with Russia and the U.S. is seeking and and the U.S. seeking to fill the void. China is taking advantage of a historic opportunity to wedge itself into the heart of the West. Deal by deal, applying experience honed in Asia and Africa, China is constructing parallel financial and commercial networks in Central and Eastern Europe to challenge the global order. It has taken footholds in more than a dozen nations on the periphery of the European Union. Some, such as Hungary, are smaller, more marginalized members. Others, including Serbia, are on the runway for admission. Article goes on, Beijing's offers of trophy infrastructure and financial lifelines to troubled economies give those countries proposals they aren't hearing from Washington and Moscow, which both generally view the region through through prisms of national security. And it concludes in part, for European politicians, the Chinese alternative promises quick results and less fuss over contracts and transparency than typically found in the West. The catch is that China's package deals are government orchestrated and require borrowing from its banks to pay its contractors. Another article, hugely vital article, talks about these, this port lending and the like as a Trojan horse. It is estimated that state backed Chinese investors state own at least 10% of all equity in ports in Europe, with deals inked in Greece, Spain, Italy, France, the Netherlands, and Belgium. This is in addition to a growing investment portfolio of at least 40 ports in North and South America, Africa, the Middle East, Eastern Europe, and on and on and on. China's interest in European ports is defined and driven by the Belt and Road Initiative. Folks, this is the biggest geopolitical challenger to America. And when we come back from a quick break, I want to talk a little bit about the tremendous shift back, a revolutionary shift to first recognize the nature of the China problem and start to push back on them. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck here on New Year's Eve. Thanks for tuning in. Before the break, we teed up a little bit part of the China story, which is what has China done? The next part is, what has America acknowledged, publicly recognized, and what is America doing to start to push back on it? And of course, it starts by recognizing the problem. And there was a vital part of our national security strategy that came out last year or this year, early this year, that recognized something that few in the political establishment would have ever imagined uttering for years. I'll quote from it. For decades, U.S. policy was rooted in the belief that support for China's rise and for its integration into the post-war international order would liberalize China. Contrary to our hopes, China expanded its power at the expense of the sovereignty of others. China gathers and exploits data on an unrivaled scale and spreads features of its authoritarian system, including corruption and the use of surveillance. It is building the most capable and well-funded military in the world after our own. Its nuclear arsenal is growing and diversifying. Part of China's military modernization and economic expansion is due to its access to the U.S. innovation economy, including America's world-class universities. So we acknowledge the problem in our national security strategy. And then in our national defense strategy, this was written. The central challenge to U.S. prosperity and security is the reemergence of long-term strategic competition By what the national security strategy classifies as revisionist powers, it is increasingly clear that China and Russia want to shape a world consistent with their authoritarian model. It goes on from there. China is leveraging military modernization, influence operations, and predatory predatory economics to coerce neighboring countries to reorder the Indo-Pacific region to their advantage. And it concludes, the most far-reaching objective of this defense strategy, this being America's defense strategy, is to set the military relationship between our two countries on a path to transparency and non-aggression. Part of that starts with recognizing the nature of the problem and calling them out. So the Trump administration put out what's called a 301 report through the U.S. Trade Office. And what that did was catalog all of the unfair cheating that China engages in when it comes to, again, to the world economic architecture that we, the U.S., created and were kind enough to give them access to. The FBI and the Department of Justice have called out espionage in testimony from China in Congress, including talking about the malign influence of the Confucius Institutes that I talked about before. As I mentioned, Vice President laid out a landmark speech that I urge all of you to read at the Hudson Institute earlier this year in the fall, That laid out all the malign activities of China and what the administration is starting to do. That's a pretty big deal when the Vice President gives a landmark speech like that. We've also named and shamed... The DOJ has announced a slew of indictments of Chinese espionage, including in areas that are strategically significant in technology. And actually, Jeff Sessions delivered an address when he was the Attorney General saying that China would be an explicit focus of the Department of Justice, prosecuting Chinese espionage and cheaters. Beyond that, we've seen a military build-up under President Trump. We've seen investment in the Navy, And in our nuclear arsenal, retooling it. We have potentially, we're potentially going to pull out of the INF Treaty. Now that is geared towards Russia on its face, but there's actually a Chinese impact to that as well, which is that China's not a party to it. And that's a threat to them if we're no longer a party to it. We've taken off the handcuffs by engaging in offensive cyber warfare. There's reportedly an executive order which says that the U.S. will indeed engage again in offensive cyber warfare, as all of our adversaries have done to us. There's, of course, the trade issues. I believe, and Larry Kudlow, for example, of the National Economic Council, has said that tariffs for this presidency are effectively a means to an end, which is ultimately free trade. And in this case, it's first getting China to stop cheating, and then it's to actually enter a system of free, fair, and reciprocal trade. We've been building bilateral relationships in the Indo-Pacific specifically to counter China's influence, tightening up regulation of business deals with foreign entities, including, of course, China promoting arms sales to Taiwan. China hates that concept. The Build Act to help compete against China's strategic efforts to build around the world. We've laid out all of these things, and this is just the start of a massive shift in U.S. government priority to counteract China's malign influence. With our next guest, we'll talk a little bit about China's aims and America's response to them. We'll be right back on the Buck Sexton program. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton here at the top of hour two. And during the last hour, we spoke a bit about China's global strategy and this Trump administration's pushback, which I think is potentially a revolutionary change in American foreign policy. Today, we're joined by an expert on the subject, Dean Cheng, who is a senior fellow at the Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation, where he specializes in Chinese political and security affairs. Dean, thank you so much for joining us, and Happy New Year.
1: Thank you for having me, and Happy New Year to you as well.
2: Appreciate it. Dean, when we look at China's malign activities and also China's stated national goals, the question is, how does it implicate U.S. national interest? And And the question I would ask is, to you, what would the world look like if China achieved its stated national goals by, say, 2049?
1: Well, so what we have with China, I think it's important to emphasize, is not a rising power. This is not imperial Germany circa 1913. In some ways, it's more dangerous because it's a returning power. For thousands of years, China dominated all of Asia. It was the Middle Kingdom. It was also the Central Kingdom. All of its neighbors, they never balanced against China. Instead, they were uh tributary states they they offered tribute to China and i think that's the model of international relations that china is now bringing to a global stage china wants to be a uh china is a returning major power um and as the number 2 economy in the world soon potentially be to be the number 1 that's how it wants to be treated um, the implications for the united states are quite severe if the so-called Made in China 2025 project succeeds, for example, then China wants to be the world's leader in the manufacturing of things ranging from locomotive engines to aircraft to agricultural products to microchips. And the question people should be asking is, what do you think the world would look like then in 2026 if China succeeds? I think the answer to that is, China would have a protected domestic market that other countries would not be able to compete in, but which would generate the money for China to then subsidize a global push on the economic side to dominate global locomotive trade, global uh, aircraft trade, global space operations, global uh, microchip manufacturing. Uh, And as we've seen with Sri Lanka, as we've seen elsewhere in Asia, when China dominates, other countries
2: bow. What do you make of my assessment that the currently ongoing trade negotiations are merely one part of a much more comprehensive effort to push back on China using some or even all elements of U.S. national power, as we've seen embedded in documents like the Trump administration's national security strategy, the national defense strategy, and numerous addresses, including those by Vice President Pence in recent months?
1: Well, I hope you're correct. Um, The problem I have uh, with that assessment is I think it's overly optimistic. Um, We seem to have a government that has distinct trouble coordinating among its various elements. Uh, We certainly have a government where uh, various parts of the deep state seem to feel that they are entitled to try and act against uh, presidential uh, directives and operations. Um, So I'm I'm hoping that there is more of a strategy there uh, being in the implementation. But I do think you've identified two key documents that did, in fact, come out and mark a huge sea change. Uh, The national uh, security strategy and the national defense strategy basically say, we view China and Russia as our foremost threats, not terrorism, not ISIS, not al-Qaeda. Those are still bad. But the people that we have to truly worry about are nation-state level actors who can mobilize a huge amount of resources. And in the case of China, they are mobilizing not just military resources, but economic, political, human, uh, technological, and financial
2: what is the significance? Often we hear about China's man-made islands, militarization of those islands, efforts in the South China Sea and essentially trying to exert their sovereignty over waters that the international community would generally argue and certainly the US would argue are not theirs. How does what is the impact of those moves on everyday American life ultimately?
1: Ultimately speaking, we are talking about China trying to expand its sovereignty over international common spaces. So for the South China Sea issue, we're talking about the carotid artery of global trade. $5.3 trillion of goods moves through those waters every year. Um, if your listeners are listening on a, um, on a laptop If they are going to later uh, wash the Rose Bowl tomorrow on a flat screen, if they're going to get um, a beer or a soft drink out of a refrigerator, those goods quite likely have passed through the South China Sea, and if not the goods themselves, certainly subparts and components. If China controls those waters as national waters, then it has the ability to really um, basically strangle uh, international trade, or at least make it much more expensive for all of those goods
2: there was recently a bipartisan report published which essentially said and i will paraphrase it here that the u.s might not win in a war head-to-head with china presumably a conventional war what do you make of that report and how would you compare overall china's conventional and non-conventional capabilities versus those of america
1: well the chinese have two advantages Uh, One is very basic, which people forget, which is the U.S. is a global military power, um, and we need to be because we have global interests. What that means is every dollar we spend on defense gets spread around the world. China is still a regional military power, and every uh, renminbi, every yuan it spends, it mostly gets focus at home. So if we have 12 aircraft carriers... In the Pacific, if we're lucky, we have seven, and not all of those are going to be available. Uh, China is working on its third aircraft carrier, and they're keeping all of those at home. So far from 12 to 3, we're looking at 7 to 3 and probably less. So that's the basic. The bigger issue is China knows where it wants to go. China sees us as a threat. For eight years, we had an administration that actively worked to prevent us from even saying that China is a threat. Um, We had a senior commander of Pacific Command who said the greatest threat in his area of responsibility, meaning the entire Pacific, was climate change. Not North Korea, not China. Climate change. When you have senior military commanders thinking that way, talking that way, you're going to have a lot harder time trying to get the resources and the you know uh, the war planning done versus an adversary who says, you know who my biggest enemy is? It's the United States.
2: Yeah, one can only imagine what uh, the, the perception of those comments about climate change was in Beijing. A- and meanwhile, it's not as if there have not been a series of potentially cataclysmic acts that China has engaged in towards the US that oftentimes I think are overlooked two of them in recent years being the OPM hack number one and number two the literal liquidation killing of our intelligence network on Chinese soil put in context how devastating those two acts have been
1: China somebody once pointed a major British historian pointed out we should be rewriting the entire history of the Second World War now that all of the um, secrets have been declassified about how we were reading all of the German codes and all the Japanese codes, that is how fundamental our ability to read their information was. The fact that the Chinese basically have all of our personnel data and were able to crack our communications to kill off our you know, network of agents gives you an idea of how much of our mail email uh, documents, data flow. They are reading. Um, This is, you know, if there is a conflict and the other side knows your orders, knows where your forces are going, knows your rules of engagement, you are seriously up a creek.
2: What is China's end goal in establishing control of ports throughout the world, including most notably in europe and the middle east this has been described by some as sort of a trojan horse effort to what end
1: well i don't think it is to so that there will be chinese troops walking the uh, the unter den linden or you know uh occupation forces in rome this is, this is not how the chinese i think are thinking i think what it is is to have enough of control and influence over key parts of the global trade and later the global financial system that when another country be it the united states or germany or whomever says hey you have to stop hacking into our data hey you have to start respecting intellectual property rights the chinese say you know be a real shame if none of your cranes worked if none of your pipelines worked i mean that's the sort of thing that we are seeing now in sri lanka apparently now in kenya is where the chinese have financed ports and things and then they basically say, "Hey, you sign this contract, pay up." And when the country can't, it's like, "Okay, well, that's simple enough. We're foreclosing, and we're taking over the port." Um, you know, when you're talking about a country like Greece uh, or you know Hungary, that is potentially the situation. Less likely in a place like Germany or France because they're, they are wealthier, but poor European countries may someday face the same Piper.
2: What is the appropriate response to what I've frequently referred to as sort of a loan-to-own strategy? That is, China provides financing that seems to present no strings attached to it, but then ultimately the financing, uh, the debt burden becomes crippling and then the foreign nation has to then turn over those assets to the Chinese. What is the appropriate response from the West in general and America in particular?
1: Well, I think one important thing not to do is to not get into a competition with the Chinese on who can loan more people more money. Because, as my good friend Derek Scissors over at the American Enterprise Institute has pointed out, you will never outsubsidize the Chinese. Their loans and things are not based on financial balance sheets. It's not based on a good business plan. It is strategic. It is, hey, I want influence in this country. I don't care if that port never makes money. If I gain influence, that's my payoff. So... On the one hand, so long as we are operating on a more financially sound basis, that's part of what we should be doing. We should be saying, hey, this port is a good idea. We should look at it because it will make everybody money, including the owning country. In the meantime, though, one of the things we could probably do is, for example, create a voluntary core of legal experts so that poorer countries could have you know, advice to say, look, you, do, you may not realize this, but these loan terms are terrible. You may not realize this, but they are going to ultimately charge you an arm and a leg and a head uh, in terms of interest rates. Don't sign this contract. We might even offer to help provide negotiators, and because they would be paid, therefore, um, you know, they are presumably going to be working for the government of the other country, um, to say, look, you, know, you may need some actual negotiating advice, legal advice on, you know, before you sign with the Chinese. These are things that I think human talent-wise we could be helping to develop in these countries so that they have a better chance of standing up to the Chinese.
2: You speak about the sort of illogic from an economic perspective of much of China's efforts abroad to essentially buy influence, not actually have prosperous projects. Domestically, I wonder if you could speak a bit to the idea that, look, central planning fails everywhere that it's tried. To what degree has central planning hampered the Chinese, and ultimately could it prove to be, to some degree, their downfall, their fatal flaw?
1: You know, I think that um, uh, if I were a more suspicious person, I'd say that uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez basically seems to be a better disciple of Mao than the Chinese, (laughs) Uh, the Chinese themselves have said, look, central planning doesn't work. So the Chinese economy today is this weird hybrid. They call it a socialist market economy where certain directives are laid out and state-owned enterprises don't operate according to making a profit. But resource allocation still does, in fact, use the market to sort of get signals through, hey, this is working, this isn't working. So, on the one hand, your average Chinese person, you know, the restaurants they eat at, many of the shops they shop at, those are real private commercial enterprises. Um, But steel, shipbuilding, um,
2: aerospace,
1: those are state champions. They are given centralized direction. And we're watching a slowdown in innovation in those areas precisely because they are operating under an ever-heavier dead hand of you know sort of higher level oversight and direction rather than the hidden hand of, of you know more traditional capitalism
2: dean we'll have to leave it right there happy new year's and, and thank you so much for coming on
1: thank you again for having me
2: we'll be right back on the buck sexton show this is ben weingarten in for buck sexton on the buck sexton show appreciate you taking the time to spend it with me here on new year's eve you can follow me on twitter at BH Wine Garden. All right, we've been talking a bit about national security and foreign policy, as well as foreign influence. We've heard about the hysteria of foreign influence in the US, primarily from the Russians, but it also does exist from the Chinese and from all sorts of other malign actors throughout the world. One of those actors is Iran, and now their proxies. Very interestingly, Iran has built up a set of Sunni partners, and there are plenty of folks in American media and outside of American media as well, who, for example, were proponents of Iran deal and the Obama administration's policy writ large with respect to Iran and the Middle East. What was that policy? That policy was about enabling the building of a quote unquote Shiite crescent, a land bridge that would allow Iran to become the dominant hegemonic player in the region. These folks, as you would imagine, have not been pleased by the Trump administration because the Trump administration's main actions in the, re- in the region have been to counteract almost everything that the Obama administration did. For example, pulling out of Iran deal, reimposing crippling sanctions, building up an alliance of relatively secular authoritarian Sunni Arab nations as a bulwark against Iran and the Shiite crescent that they're trying to build. Not just those nations, but amazingly, an Israel-U.S.-Sunni-Arab partnership. Something that most people thought they would never see in their lifetime. But that actually is the perverse positive, the perverse benefit of an Obama administration that tried to make Iran the strong horse in the region. Now, I mentioned foreign influence and Iranian foreign influence. How do we see that in America? Well, we actually see it in a media that not only cheerleads, But even it appears is a willing participant is complicit in whether wittingly or unwittingly actual influence operations, information operations that happen to have the perverse detrimental result for America, which is putting forth the Iranian position, pushing back on this alliance that has been built as a bulwark against it. And ultimately, damaging our relationship with Israel, damaging our relationship with others who are vital to defending against the world's leading state sponsor of jihad in Iran. Where is this influence operation most acute? We see it in the story of Jamal Khashoggi. And up next, we're going to talk about that influence operation. This has been Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. We'll talk about that influence operation back in just a minute. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. All right. Before our break, we spoke a bit about foreign influence operations, one of them being that of Jamal Khashoggi. And to to give you a little bit more context here, Jamal Khashoggi was cast by the media as this liberty-loving, muckraking journalist from Saudi Arabia who was fighting the good fight against the authoritarian Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, and as a result of his efforts was brutally butchered by that regime in Turkey in the Saudi embassy there. Some of us, including my next guest and his organization, as well as myself, question that official narrative, and suddenly, two months after this influence operation has had its intended effect, we now find that those who were cast as having smeared Khashoggi We're actually telling the exact truth that The Washington Post has just printed where he used to write. Joining me now on the line is David Reboy, Senior Vice President at the Security Studies Group. His organization has done tremendous work on the Khashoggi story. David, thanks so much for joining us.
0: It's my pleasure. Happy New Year.
2: Likewise. Happy New Year to you as well. So you contend that the entire Khashoggi story, and you were following this in real time, is in effect... An information operation done effectively on behalf of the Qatari government, which is aligned with the Iranians, and thus this whole information operation has benefited the Iranians. Connect the dots for us.
0: Sure. Well, I want to give you a lot of credit too, because uh, because you hey you and I were were there at the very beginning as as soon as this was um, as soon as this was breaking, and uh, I think we uh, we both saw not a lot of people did we both saw the, the stitches on the fastball coming at us and um and we recognized this for what for really for what it um, for what it was so i, I want to commend you on on your great work on this um as well well thank you but uh but sure but to to be brief um we had in uh, in, in in the middle east especially around these parts where you don't have a real robust tradition of um, a free, inquisitive, nonpartisan press. Um, You don't even have the aspiration for that. What you do have, you have basically agents of influence or what uh, people, people who would be called in another context, um, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, um, intelligence agents, and their job, you know, some guys are spies. Some guys um, do research, and some guys are journalists. That's just the cover that they wear, and they go sort of from place to place, from from gig to gig, um, advancing the interests of their patron. And Khashoggi was a guy who did this and plied his 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 wares. His wares were were um, were um, were influenced through. The medium of journalism, um, or, or writing columns. And, um, and he did it on behalf of, uh, Osama bin Laden and the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. He did it on behalf of, uh, the prior ruling clique in, um, uh, in Saudi Arabia, uh, specifically, um, uh, Turkey al-Faisal. Um, and, um, and most recently he was doing it on behalf of the Qatari government. And um, it's, it's kind of interesting how all of those particular um, patrons that Khashoggi had were sort of of a similar um, Islamist stripe. Well, at some point over the last uh, couple of years, this particular uh, point of view, this, this the Islamist persuasion of Khashoggi meets up uh, against MBS and the new um, kind of reform movement that's going on in Saudi Arabia. And all of a sudden, Khashoggi is the odd man out. Um, his, his particular uh, sympathies for the Muslim Brotherhood put him uh, far outside of what, um, of, of what uh, um, Mohammed bin Salman and, and, and the rest of the young reformers in the kingdom um, want to go, or where they want to go with, uh, with their society. They're very anti-Brotherhood, and they're also very anti-Iran. Now, Khashoggi was also anti-Iran, but he was very much pro-Brotherhood. So, um, so he was he was a bit of a free agent for a while until he found the Qataris, and the Qataris uh, are, are major um, uh, rivals and regional adversaries to uh, to the Saudis, and they bankroll and give diplomatic and other institutional support to the Brotherhood, and they have for, for the last uh, you know thirty forty years. And so this so Qatar was really a perfect home for Jamal Khashoggi. Um, and, um, and sort of that brings us to his, uh, his, his death and, uh, you know, his, his death at the hands of his believed to be, uh, Saudi agents, probably almost, you know, certainly, um, Saudi agents inside, um, uh, inside Turkey. But the more, the more we learn about this, the more it seems like, uh, it wasn't, so much a killing in cold blood as it was an attempted rendition. They wanted to bring him home. Um, they wanted to, to, uh, to bring him home from, uh, from Turkey back to Saudi Arabia, and he didn't want to go. It seemed like there was a, a, a fight, a struggle ensued, and, um, and he died. Now, that's a terrible thing, sure. It's a terrible thing when, when anyone dies. But um, as I pointed out recently at, uh, at a, in a new article at Security Studies Group, securitystudies.org. Um, it's, it's a very, it's a far different story. You know, a spy dying, um, on the way to be, um, to be sort of forcibly taken back to his home country is a far cry from the media narrative, which is that he was this wonderful freedom loving, um, journalist who was just, you know, murdered because Saudi Arabia couldn't stand the idea of someone advocating for freedom. Um, which, of course, is the narrative that uh, both Qataris want to advance and, and also the, the narrative that um, a lot of people on the left uh, and the Washington Post want to advance. So we're in a kind of strange situation where Khashoggi was a Qatari asset prior to his death, and his death, um, you know, after his death, he sort of transmogrified again into a Qatari asset um, for use against uh, the Saudis. Um, you know, once once he had uh, once he had uh, sort of you know uh, de- departed his natural life. So it's a, it's an interesting situation. I think you know um, it's, it's by far one of the big stories of the year for for
2: a number of reasons. Yeah, and Time has made Khashoggi one of their People of the Year, holding him up. You know, and this is the part of this which is just purely cynical politics of. Journalists are under attack around the world, and here was someone who was writing in the U.S. for the Washington Post, and thus Trump is responsible, or Trump is somehow complicit because he's working with Mohammed bin Salman to defend U.S. national interest in that region, and and Salman is portrayed as the butcher in all of this. But I want to go back to just the basic details of Khashoggi's background, and you raise a few of them. He was effectively a quote unquote state journalist for the prior ruling prior clique in Saudi Arabia. He worked closely with Turkey bin Faisal, who was the Saudi intelligence chief until just before 9 11 and then an ambassador after. So Khashoggi presumably traveled around with him as an advisor. And Khashoggi was an Islamic supremacist as well. How did he ever end up allowed into the United States in the first place?
0: this is an excellent question that nobody seems to know the answer to. Um, I know a number of people at, I mean, at, at first, as, as we remember, the story was that he was a green card holder. And, you know, I reached out to people that I know at, uh, at uh, DHS and, and, um, and, and others in government, and I said, hey, uh, can you find out for me some of the details about his green card um, application and, and so forth? And the response was, hey, we don't know anything. And you know, and it quickly became clear that he was not a green card holder, but he was in this country uh legally somehow. And to this date, it's been several months and we still don't really know the answer to who was the one that gave him a thumbs up, who was the one that um that uh that allowed him to uh allowed him to come in and and, and look, I mean it's it's possible he came in um in a diplomatic way because he did um for a time he did work at the Saudi embassy uh, in Washington, so it's possible that he um, he still had uh, some type of diplomatic uh, uh, credentials and uh you know he was a known guy around town so uh, it, it's uh it's, it's reasonable to expect that there was someone in the bureaucracy or uh the intelligence community that uh that kind of raised their hand to uh uh, on his behalf, and uh, and and got him in here. I mean, regardless, somebody who hung out with the Mujahideen and Bin Laden in Afghanistan should probably be looked at twice, uh, if admitted at all.
2: This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Show. We'll pick up this conversation on Jamal Khashoggi just after the break. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. We've been speaking with David Reboy, Senior Vice President at the Security Studies Group, about the story of Jamal Khashoggi, one of the defining stories of 2018 in the, in the view of the media, but actually it's defining because it shows the media being complicit in an information operation from hostile powers. Now, David, we were just talking about how Jamal Khashoggi was able to enter the United States in the first place. Regardless, he has been held up as a cause celeb and used on a bipartisan basis, in a sense, as a martyr, as a political symbol for the political establishment to impose its views on the Trump administration, essentially. What has been the impact of the death of Khashoggi? How has it been leveraged?
0: Sure. He's Primarily the people I, uh, who are, who are sort of waiting the bloody, uh, uh, Khashoggi shirt, so to speak, um, fall into one or more of these categories, I think. Uh, the first is people who are, uh, pro-Islamist, pro-Muslim brotherhood. It doesn't mean that they are, um, that they're neither, um, Muslim nor brothers, um, but they think that the best bet for the Middle East is to have, um, you know, to, is to have what they believe is you know authentic Islamic uh, uh, democracy, which they think is uh, Sharia law, and they think it's a, you know, sort of positive development for the region. Um, I think that's crazy. You and know, I think that's crazy, but you know, this this particular point of view is quite popular in uh, inside the Beltway, and especially at uh, at, at CIA and uh, and some other intelligence agencies. So. You've got that. On the other hand, there are a lot of people who are pro-Iran and who still resent Saudi Arabia's role together with Israel in trying to convince the then-Obama administration not to, uh, not to implement the JCPOA or the Iran deal. Um, these guys, uh, I think uh, specifically MBS and, uh, and his particular um, young generation, understood very clearly and, and still do um, that Iran is a greater threat to their own stability and, and the re- their regime's stability and also the, um, the stability of the, of the Middle East, uh, than, than, Israel is. So they allied together to, um, to combat the, uh, the Iran deal. They failed in that regard, but the people who pushed the Iran deal very hard still harbor a grudge. And they would like to, um, uh, they would like to get back at the Saudis any way they can. So then there's a third group of folks who are hardcore fanatical Trump, uh, Trump haters. And these people, you know, take a look at the scene and they see, um, they see Jared Kushner's, uh, very tight relationship with MBS. They see, um, they see Donald Trump's first foreign visit both to Jerusalem and also to Riyadh. And they say, Hey, you know, the, uh, the Saudis are close to Trump. Therefore the Saudis are bad therefore we need to um attack them um you know sort of in uh in every uh in every venue and um i think those three you know those those three things sort of explain um most of the people who are who are who are going into hysterics about this which is you know to be blunt and it sound you know people who are not familiar with geopolitics people who are not familiar with the middle east um may think this is Rather callous, but the truth of the matter is, it's one guy who gets killed in the Middle East, and that stuff, you know, that's like Tuesday, you know, that's that's not um, that's not uh, you know something something exceptional, and it's certainly not something that is caused to completely reorient our um, our Middle East policy, which is which is what a lot of these folks would like to do. As I said, they would like to realign towards the Brotherhood, and they would like to realign towards Iran, and Saudi Arabia stands in between those two things and opposed to those two things. So, um, so obviously, you know, folks who care about that are going to be taking their shots, and that's pretty much what we've seen over the last um, over the last couple of months.
2: I'm going to throw in one more interested actor in love affair Khashoggi and we've just got a minute and a half to talk about this actor, Turkey. This happened in a Saudi embassy in Turkey. Turkey has been increasingly aligned with the Muslim Brotherhood, Qatar, even the Iranians, even though they're not natural allies by any stretch. Based on what you've observed and what has happened in the world, including in Syria, with sort of a rapprochement between the U.S. and Turkey in some regards as partners, do you believe that there is a substantial Turkish Leveraging of Khashoggi as well to their benefit, and what is that benefit?
0: Well, of course, um, uh, uh, I think of course that's true. Uh, Security Studies Group. We, uh, my my colleagues Nick Short and Brad Patty wrote a um, kind of brilliant paper about this, um, tracking the um, tracking the way the Turks used the flow of information leaking out. Uh, sort of very deliberately and very strategically in order to extract maximum uh, benefit and in order to uh, in order to, to generate the most uh, the most pain for the Saudis as uh, as they did so and you know we know that the um, the Saudis and the uh, the Turks are are and have been um, rivals um, just as the Qataris and the um, and the Saudis have been. And you know, of course, they want to take advantage now, you mentioned the reproach law between the u s and Turkey. I'm not sure if that's really the case or if it is just sort of a temporal tactical good kind of good feeling um towards the Turks here so so that's that's yet to play out i think if I think if the president uh does indeed move closer to Turkey in a tangible way then um then I think that's that's the you know that's a terrible thing strategically, and it would be, it would be a horrible blunder that um, that uh, I would be surprised if, if John Bolton went along with that.
2: David, we're going to have to leave it right there. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll be right back on the Buck Sexton Show in just a minute. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Follow me on Twitter at BH Winegarden. Also, encourage you to read my pieces at benweingarten.com and subscribe to my podcast wherever you get your podcast. It's the Big Ideas with Ben Weingarten podcast. All of this in my Twitter profile. All right. So, we were just talking with David Reboy at length about Jamal Khashoggi, national security and foreign affairs writ large. And now I want to transition back to what is going down on the ground domestically and what we're going to see over the next two years. You know, I think it's total folly to try to make 10 predictions for 2019, 10 predictions for 2020. Part of what being a conservative means is you have to understand human nature. One of the realities about human nature is that We cannot comprehend the millions of variables that go into any of these political circumstances. If that was the case, why were so few of the quote-unquote experts able to see what was coming in the 2016 election? Being a conservative requires humility. It requires understanding our own limitations. That does not mean, of course, that we shouldn't look at what is going on on the ground. And the horse race, frankly, for 2020 has already started. Just today, Elizabeth Warren, Senator from Massachusetts, Pocahontas. You can actually look at the Vegas odds. It's going to be about 1,024 to 1 that she will be the next president of the United States. She formed an exploratory committee for presidency. She is joined by any number of folks mainly to her left, amazingly, by the way, amazing that she is not on the firm left wing of her party, potentially. Look at someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She would probably consider Elizabeth Warren the equivalent of what we would call rhinos. Who is she joined by? Well, in the old guard, you do have folks like Bernie Sanders. You also have Joe Biden. Joe Biden will be an interesting figure because I think a lot of people believe that he is someone who could peel off some of those, what I would call Reagan Democrats, the new Reagan Democrats, call them Trump Democrats in the Midwest, in the heartland and elsewhere, who went and voted for a Republican against many odds. And Trump has sort of tried to reorient the party towards being a workers party, so to speak, the party of labor, the party of the middle class and the lower middle class. This is a dramatic shift in our politics. Reagan did it before, and this is the Trump equivalent of it. So Joe Biden is seen as a figure who potentially could threaten that stranglehold on the middle. Those voters who swung over and voted Republican and said they've had enough with the establishment Democrats and those like Hillary Clinton amazingly, in some ways, you can see parallels almost between Bernie Sanders supporters and Donald Trump supporters. And by the way, Bernie is another candidate who will definitely be competing, I believe, in this next election, although he is not announced yet. And he is old, to be fair. But let's not be ageist here. His galvanizing support during that last election were younger Democrats, the Young Turks. But he has some more competition this time. He has folks like Cory Booker, who's already spent time out in Iowa, substantial time on the ground. He's building his national network. He's doing all the things one would do if they were really serious about it. Now I have my doubts about Spartacus. He's shown himself on the national stage to be buffoonish at times, frankly. He has a likable personality and that's powerful. And Democrats love the idea of rising star candidates. Traditionally Republicans have been the party of it's the next person in line you've paid your dues you've worked your way up You've ingratiated yourself with the establishment. It doesn't really matter that the conservative base is where the real energy is in the party It is about paying your dues working your way up the ladder and then you were ultimately rewarded for it with your nomination Clearly it didn't go that way last election. However Democrats believe in these rising stars They believe in the people who catch fire overnight. And that's why, in spite of the fact that there is a massive list of Democrats potentially running next time, someone who is not even on the radar could potentially be in play. Just look at Donald Trump's ascendance. Who else is on the left? Well, we have the billionaire class. And this is really interesting because at least one of the two billionaires is going to have a real tough time dealing with the base in his party that fundamentally loathes capitalism, and loathes corporate people besides those in certain more creative industries. So you have Tom Steyer on the one hand. Tom Steyer is someone who probably has, I would guess, minimal national name identification. What he does have is a massive bank account and loyalty within his party because he's been supporting the left wing of his party for years with millions of dollars to his name. This is a guy who is an enviro radical, someone who is an arch leftist, who believes essentially in taking the fruits of capitalism, the billion hundreds of millions if not billions of dollars that he has earned and using it to in effect take down that very system. There's something sickening about that. It goes back to my to my opening monologue today. You have these people who have been gifted this unbelievable system that has enabled them to flourish, to pursue their self-interest, to pursue their happiness, to pursue their dreams. And what do they do with it? They say, I hate this system and I wanna put millions of dollars of my own money in to turn it on its head, to repudiate everything that the country was built on. So Tom Steyer's won. Then you have Michael Bloomberg, New York Democrat, New York by way of Boston, Democrat, built a tremendous company, a dominant company, in the news and information space, in the financial space. I used to work in finance years ago. Everyone had a Bloomberg box. It remains the monopoly in finance. So he learned how to build a better widget than anyone else and develop contracts and ties that would ultimately allow him to be a dominant player in the marketplace. And for that, he should be commended. He's been a fantastically successful business person, but his politics are god-awful. I believe... That he will be portrayed the way Democrats would have loved to portray Donald Trump but couldn't, which is as an out-of-touch billionaire. But not only that, someone who is at odds with his party fundamentally because he would be cast as a moderate, quote-unquote. You know, he was sort of a Republican in New York and then an independent because he couldn't really win as a Republican, etc. Basically, what he is in many respects is a classic Democrat in a lot of ways. You know, he's most known probably nationally for backing these campaigns to clamp down on guns. Second Amendment is his issue. I believe that what he thinks are moderate common sense stances and which he may articulate in a moderate common sense sort of way. I believe it's not going to fly nationally. And I think his jabbing, jousting with Donald Trump, that Donald Trump is going to wipe the floor with him ultimately if it ever came to it. You saw what he did to his Republican opponents and then Hillary Clinton. And and I think before it even gets to that point, Mike Bloomberg is going to have challenges within his own party. And he may run as someone who acts as if he can unify the two parties. But if that's the case, he doesn't really have a good perspective on where the Republican and conservative base is today, certainly. Even among the most ardent never-Trumpers, it's hard to imagine them being pro-Bloombergites. They'd probably rather not vote, I would guess. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm being overly optimistic here. Then you have others like a Julian Castro or a Kamala Harris or an Amy Klobuchar or my personal favorite of all, Robert Francis O'Rourke, a.k.a. Beto. Now, I think Beto is going to have some problems, too, because and this is really one of the sickening things about where the left is and where Democrats are today. You see this in Twitter and Twitter is not an accurate representation by any stretch, I think, of where the country is. The people who use Twitter actively are self-selecting a lot of them are political junkies many of them say things in twitter that they would never say to someone's face in person but there's been an active campaign on the left about saying that a white male cannot be the left's nominee which goes against everything the country is based on you want to talk about the idea of judging people on the basis of the content of their character not the color of their skin or something they have no control over in their sex it's it's absurd. It's asinine. There's one party that is really obsessed with all of these intangible qualities that reflect nothing about who you are as a person and what you're made of or about your individuality. They're all about collectivizing groups of people. And then they're about saying, well, you happen to hit certain boxes, so you may be problematic, quote, unquote. That's the word they like to use, problematic. Robert Francis O'Rourke, I believe, is problematic because he goes by the moniker, Beto, he's a cultural appropriator. He tries to portray himself as something he is not on an identity politics basis, as if he is a Latino Democrat from Texas. And by the way, of course, that's tremendously valuable from the perspective of the left, because if they flip Texas, they believe they will have flipped the country permanently. The other ground, of course, is immigration. Flood the country with illegal aliens, give them mass amnesty, and it's their belief that then they will have a permanent democratic majority, which is incredibly cynical on the one hand. It's sort of an, it's an evil plan on the other, and they're never really honest about it. They're never really honest about it. We're going to take a quick break, but before we do, I want to talk to you about Black Rifle Coffee Company. You know, in the midst of all this whining and, frankly, hysteria coming from the left, many of the folks I was just talking about, whether it comes to the climate crisis, identity politics, toxic masculinity, focahontas, you have to wonder why in the world would anyone act this way? My guess is they're not getting their daily dose of black rifle coffee. I am a once a day coffee drinker. I'll probably end up twice a day or maybe three times a day in the next year. Yeah, I might've mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm, I'm about to be a father actually. So I'm going to need that extra energy. And what I like about Black Rifle are a few things. For one, the flavor and for two, the variety, but also that it's a company that represents conservative values and it has a pro veteran mission, all things worthy of supporting. Black Rifle coffee is a roast to order coffee, guaranteeing you fresh, delicious coffee with every order. Black Rifle Coffee gives a portion of their sales to veteran and first responder causes. And Black Rifle's Coffee Club makes things easy. Just pick your blend and the amount you want, and Black Rifle ships your coffee right to your door every month, hassle-free. Nothing cures a bad attitude quite like starting your day with the most American coffee ever, Black Rifle Coffee. Visit blackriflecoffee.com slash buck and receive 15% off your order. That's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 15% off. Annoy a liberal. BlackRifleCoffee.com slash Buck. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Follow me on Twitter at BHWeingarten. Before the break, we were talking about the horse race, which has already started in earnest for 2020, and we were focusing on President Trump's foils on the left, the assumed competition, then there's of course the trump agenda itself there's the opposition and then there's the positive which is what will president trump be running on in a couple of years what will the public perceive as the most vital issues what will motivate them will you be able to summarize the question will you be able to respond easily to the question are you better off than you were four years ago One of the things that I think was missed in the campaign between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton is that you knew exactly what the Trump agenda was. You could not define Hillary Clinton's agenda. A candidate needs to be able to to define themselves. They cannot allow the opposition to define them. And they also can't be defined by just being in opposition themselves. We've seen Trump derangement syndrome as the unifying ethos, the unifying philosophy for Democrats. Can you describe what the Democratic agenda is today? You kind of know what direction they want to go in any of a number of issues, economics, maybe national security and foreign policy, although it's probably somewhat ambiguous. Maybe in trade, maybe not. Environmentalism, yeah, you can, de- you can define that regulations, health care, size of government. Democrats cannot easily define these things. They are defined by their hatred of the president. And you see that the older hands in the House, for example, like Gerald Nadler, the incoming House Judiciary Chair, who would be the person overseeing a potential impeachment of Donald Trump in the House, You see that they are kind of trying to slowly lead along the more radical, energized, animated elements, hostile elements towards the president within their caucus. But on the other hand, they cannot upset where their base is and the base is in Trump hatred mode. They have been since before day one. Will that Trump derangement syndrome lead the left, the Democrats, to overstep Presumably, Nancy Pelosi and others in leadership, the old hands, will say no because they'll view it as potentially devastating in 2020 for them to have not learned the lessons from Republicans back in 98, 99 when it came to Bill Clinton. I've pointed out and I urge you to read this. In an editorial at The Federalist, I wrote about Gerald Nadler, what Gerald Nadler said back then, because guess what? He's a swamp creature. He has been in the House since before 1998. So he was there when impeachment proceedings, conversations were going on in the House. What he said during that time period, and I'm going to paraphrase here, was the following. Perjuring yourself over something personal Over something sexual in nature is not an impeachable offense. What are impeachable offenses impeachable offenses are high crimes and misdemeanors that actively gum up or thwart or betray the Constitution and actually threaten the separation of powers and checks and balances. In other words, for the most part, we're talking about besides the most egregious potential acts. What we're talking about here is violating your office in the sense of destroying the constitutional imperatives. He specifically said perjuring yourself over personal matters is essentially non-factor. At the same time, he goes on television after the latest, you know, the last Michael Cohen revelations about, oh, a potential campaign finance violation, and then did the president but he wasn't president at the time, so can he really be impeached if he wasn't even a president when the acts occurred? That the president was involved in a conspiracy to commit a campaign finance violation regarding alleged hush payments. Gerald Nadler created two very different standards for Bill Clinton and for Donald Trump over something which is not even, we don't even know we don't even know what a campaign finance violation is when you have a payment that would have been made before you were president, first of all. Second of all, over something which really was separate and apart from politics. You could certainly make that argument. Democrats would argue on the other side. But is it Is it an in-kind contribution for there to be an alleged hush payment? Well, Gerald Nadler today says yes. He was speaking a different tune 20 years ago. And frankly, he made very solid, meritorious arguments about the gravity of raising something like impeachment. Why? It's politically perilous. And why is it politically perilous? Because to accuse the president of committing high crimes and misdemeanors and then potentially pass those papers up to the Senate to get to the point of removal is... Essentially, the most radical act that the legislative branch could take versus the executive branch. But the energy in his party is so strong. They'll be marching out in the streets if Donald Trump is not impeached, probably. And if we get to 2020 and Donald Trump is elected again, and I think if he follows through on his agenda, he will be elected again. He's got a real problem, Gerald Nadler and the rest of the Democrats in the House. They really do. And you have to ask yourself the question. Will they push things too far? It's not just about what is President Trump's record. It's not just about who his opposition is going to be. But there's a serious question about what the Democrats are going to do in the House. Is it just going to be subpoena after subpoena and essentially try to run out the clock on this presidency, create this smoke, and lead people to believe that there's fire there? It's yet to be determined. After a quick break, we're going to talk with my guest, Tammy Bruce, about the horse race, about the Trump presidency itself. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. All right, on the line right now is my guest, Tammy Bruce, someone who I've come to admire as a shrewd commentator, delightful personality, Fox News contributor, president of Independent Women's Voice, a national advocacy organization. Tammy joins us now. Let's jump right into it. Now that we turn the calendar forward to 2019, clearly the horse race has started already. And there's just an amazing confluence of events going on in the world right now. On the one hand, you have a US economy that in terms of growth, wage growth, GDP growth, unemployment rates being at lows not seen since the 60s, things look great. On the other hand, financial markets had a tumultuous 2018 and and people are certainly concerned about that. On the national security side, you have a Chinese quote-unquote trade war and increasing hostility generally there. You have North Korea's supposed denuclearization, jumping out of Iran deal. There's immigration issues, cultural issues. And then, of course, there is the writ large resistance versus the Trump administration. Of all these factors, what do you see being the most critical over the next two years?
3: Well, the critical thing is is the recognition that Trump is... A man alone if you will a a single firefighter with some people who back him up trying to put out the largest house fire that's ever existed Uh, and uh, it's going to take some time I think the most critical thing is going to be President Trump remaining vigilant uh, and focused on uh, what his mission is it was clear from the beginning I mean Trump is is not a man who uh, came from the outside and had no idea what was going on with government. So it was obvious, especially with who he's known through his life, what he was going to face. I think he's a bit of, a, of an idealist. I think to uh, be a creative person in certain ways you have to be, uh, but he also has had enough experience to know what he was going to be facing in, in all of this. I think the American people have been a bit more surprised at the depth of uh, the, uh, the revulsion of an outsider coming into the system, uh, and that in, in some ways has been frightening because it indicates that the corruption uh, of what's now been termed the deep state, which is the system, is perhaps deeper than we thought. We've seen behavior of the FBI and the DOJ, which has been shocking, uh, and I, I think that part of this is because it indicates that there's a lot more Uh, that the establishment needs to hide than we realized. So um, the other reason why there seems to be so many things happening at once is that we finally have someone in the White House who is not invested in the system moving along as it has been. He's not invested in the status quo. So you might look at it as being uh, that we had been effectively in a coma in a way, um, um, managed by machines, kept alive through a process uh, and we've had people give nice speeches and, like, no drama Obama. The system moved along in a predictable way. But underneath, as we saw at the end of the Bush administration, there were things happening that weren't discussed, that even they might not have been aware of. And so we had a, a massive financial collapse uh, because the system was supposed to be moving smoothly. What's happening with Trump is that you've, 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 we've awoken from that coma, And so any activity is going to be unusual um, and yet not necessarily unexpected. It's called life. And so the stock market is responding to activity. Trump is a man of action. And so things are occurring we're not used to uh, because the previous presidents have not acted in a way that has engendered a, a, a kind of action that, of course, you get reactions to. Uh, And I think it's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. It's necessary. um, As we are beginning to get our, um, to get back on our feet, Uh, we should expect this. And so I think the key element is for the president. And I think he knows this because he's been running a, running a massive business, of course, most of his uh, life, uh, his adult life. So he knows about the the back and forth. People in Washington uh, aren't, don't like it. And the American people, we have two generations now who are unfamiliar with it. And uh, I think communication is going to be key and him sticking with his priorities.
2: I think the critical point that you make, and you make a number of critical points there, is the idea that the president is, in some sense, a party of one. And when people talk about the resistance and, like you said, the revulsion of our political class, it's actually not a partisan issue. It is a bipartisan mm-hmm. issue, a bipartisan revolt against someone who would threaten the livelihood, the prerogatives, the credentials of those who have been, in a sense, the ruling class over time. What do you make of the sort of irony in all of this that it took someone like a Trump to be to expose the fact that those in power would be willing to act in the most lawless, violating norms, going against the institutions sort of fashion of anyone.
3: I think that when you look back on the photographs of President Trump, like uh, it, with his uh, uh, marriage and the guests being Bill and Hillary Clinton, <laughs> everybody knew Donald Trump, right? He was part of the system. Um, there was, a, I think, a general understanding amongst uh, the rich and powerful, and we do have that group of people, I want us all to become rich and powerful, of course, uh, that, they, that that I think either a direct understanding or a silent one, that everyone would go along and get along, that everyone would be benefiting based on a status quo, with the American people, uh, though, becoming the collateral damage. And I think what they did not expect, and uh, there's a, a term politically for um, um, people, even including like a... a, a FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, of men and women who are traitors to their class, people who come out of a system and turn on that system that perhaps has rewarded them in the past because something has struck them. And Trump fits within that framework. Uh, He's a traitor to his class. Now, his class is, of course, the rich, um, uh, the powerful, and those are the people that also then are supposed to understand and, and uh, you know, accept the nature of what has been going on. His crime is that I think he fell in love with the country. At first, it was perhaps um, uh, a, a genuine, uh, 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 the, the effect of what we were all experiencing, of, uh, of the government having gone kind of haywire, the direction that it was going in with Barack Obama. I think that he, he felt inherently, and had been speaking publicly and on Twitter uh, and in other ways for years, you know, rejecting and questioning um, and being extremely critical of what was happening in government. And I think that there's a point where, uh, whether it's an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Donald Trump who says, well, wait a minute, maybe something else can be done. And maybe it's, it's, maybe it's me. Uh, and it's that decision, that spark that then made him realize there was something larger than him as he moved into his 70s. Maybe part of it was boredom, uh, and he wanted something new to do. But in order to be willing to commit to really going against your team in a way, which was the establishment, I think it had to be more than that. And then the campaign, I think he really fell in love with the country, and he did get to know us. I think he became a changed man in that process and in the end and this is what for, for me as a person of faith well I don't like organized religion very much I find it not surprising that this nation has brought forth the perfect person in in our particular history uh, up till, till now the perfect man uh to address what this country is needed um whether it's Washington uh or or Lincoln uh or Reagan uh and now Trump now all very very different men but astounding trajectories and at the right place at the right time making the right decision and at, at the correct junction when it comes to what the american people need now uh, now all of them you know also faced unique problems um and have had to be very aggressive in in certain ways uh but the the the, the moment for trump and the irony of what is going on, as you put as you put it, is necessary and perfect, because it, it, it strangely only Donald Trump could do it. It would be a man or a woman with enough money to where it wouldn't matter uh, what, what what they wouldn't need in their next job, not interested in the approval of a certain crowd except the American people, um, genuinely wanting to make a difference separate from. What their lives uh, were or could have been separate from politics, the difference between trump of course and and the other men I mentioned, with the exception perhaps of president uh, uh, General Washington, is the lack of uh, you, you know obviously Reagan and Lincoln politicians, you know consummate politicians um, but but clearly, the kind of person America creates uh, in a romantic, um, deliberate kind of creative almost reckless way of moving into the future but this country but but this country system uh requires that kind of of kind of boundless optimism and willingness to face the monsters to fix the future that's what we bring to the uh, american story but to the story of really the human condition and i find this all to be very um uh predictable and necessary if the nation was to survive. And it happened. Um, and uh, it's, it's a very exciting time.
2: What do you see happening with this Democratic field? Is this, a, is this a circular firing squad where everyone tries to go to the left of everyone else? Or is there something that maybe we're not anticipating that we should be looking at?
3: Well, I, I would point to a lot of people, uh, the Democrats like to point to Connor Lamb, um, who, uh, you know, positioned himself uh, as, you know, a centrist and, and all of that. And they said, well, that that's the kind of Democrat who can win. Uh, the problem with that race for the Democrats was he faced no primary competition. So there was no leftist, no progressive uh, to challenge him and to push him uh, and to have that fight in public. And when that happens, that's where everything goes off the rails. This is this is where the Democrats have their problem. Uh, now the Republicans have already faced that that problem, if you will. The 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 benefit, though, for the Republicans is that the fight was between Donald Trump, who who's a businessman, wildly successful, uh, knew what he was doing, has had a background of knowing what you know within a, at least a conservative ideal about finances and and personal freedom, et cetera. Regardless of what you think of him personally, he had he had a business background that indicated to the American people he could handle running the country. The problem for the Democrats is uh, it's Alexandria Ocasio Cortez versus Claire McCaskill, right? It's it's people who have ideas that are that make no sense, that have been proven unworkable uh, in historically, uh, that will destroy elements of the country like. Uh, well, Medicare for all, single payer, nobody knows, you know, when, when Ocasio-Cortez is asked, how would you pay for single payer? So, well, you just pay it like you pay your rent. I, I mean, the, this is the problem for the Democrats, uh, and uh, I think that this is uh, what they're really going to find, and, and I, I, you know, they, they're already trying to set up and limit the number of debates uh, and how how public these kinds of arguments will go. Uh, But that's what's going to uh, be problematic of how far to the left uh, certain candidates get pulled in that fight and really, in fact, who might win uh, uh, or who become, you know, who who is that shorter lineup of of the Democratic nominees uh, and whether or not the American people will look and say, this does not look good. I've I've equated this as being like sending the Hindenburg to pick up the passengers of the Titanic. Uh, this is, that's what the Democrats offer. Uh, like which vehicle are you going to want to get on with them? Uh, and this is where, uh, the president of course, and, and I, I believe that they'll be able to do this is articulate to the American people, uh, because the legacy media won't do it. what has been working. Um, what still needs to go, what still needs to work. I think it's unfair that he's been attacked for not accomplishing everything he promised in two years. I mean, he is a man alone, effectively, uh, creating historical change. But for the Democrats, um, you know, and I'm still a Democrat, registered Democrat in California. Um, uh, Regular grassroots Democrats uh, want, you know, they want normal governing. They also care about their families. They care about, you know, they want to make sure they've got somebody who knows what they're doing. And they want something new. They don't want Hillary. We know that because they don't want what has been. Uh, and so uh, if, it, if they think they're, they're, they're going to be offered, you know, Joe Biden uh, and the Nancy Pelosi's out there, all of these young people and others who want something different, like the Republicans wanted something different, uh, they're in a lot of trouble because nobody's presenting themselves as the unifier that can bring uh, all of those individuals together. Uh, And it certainly uh, is not, I I don't envy them. Uh, It's going to be fascinating to watch. Uh, And in the meantime, the president is still also going to have to deal with never Trumpers uh, and individuals who are more committed to the establishment than they are to the progress of the country.
2: Tammy, we're going to have to leave it right there. Thank you so much for joining us and happy new year. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Appreciate you taking the time to spend your New Year's Eve with me. All right, before we wrap up today, I want to talk a little about Global Verification Network. If you're a business owner or otherwise hiring or maybe a property renter or someone else looking for vetted quality employees, Global Verification Network is the only dual certified veteran owned background investigations and vetting company. You can visit Global Verification Network at mygvn.com, that's mygvn.com, or you can call at 877-695-1179. Global Verification Network is federally certified as a veteran-owned small business. It's independently certified by the National Veteran Business Development Council, which is the only minority spend certification recognized by the billion-dollar roundtable. These are risk mitigation experts who work with startups to Fortune 100 companies. No data or client information is ever offshore, so there's privacy here. And all employees are located throughout the United States. Visit Global Verification Network's website at mygvn.com or call at 877-695-1179. All right, I want to conclude today. You know, I started in our opening monologue with an emphasis on being grateful for what we have. And, and I want to first start by thanking you, dear listener, for spending this day with me and, and talking about and thinking about some vital issues for this country. I also want to thank Buck Sexton for giving me the opportunity to fill in here on this New Year's Eve. It's been a pleasure. You know, as we go out today, I would leave with a couple parting thoughts. One is that this is the greatest nation ever invented in American, not just American history, obviously, but in world history. It is exceptional, and it is not exceptional because we have all of this bounty and material wealth, but because we have the freedom to pursue our happiness. This is uncommon. This is an uncommon nation. This is an uncommon lot that we have. This is an uncommon time period for all the stresses in a day-to-day basis. It's the most comfortable time to ever be alive in the history of mankind. And there's no nation in world history that has ever had this freedom. But this freedom can go away overnight, very quickly. And we see that in places from Venezuela to what Cuba once was. We see it throughout the world. There are external foes. But in reality, the most important thing is for us to be strong, for us to understand our values and our principles, and to defend those values and principles from enemies, both external and internal. This is Ben Weingarten having filled in for Buck Sexton today. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Happy New Year. Thank you so much.